the question of independence is something that I look at and have tried to make connections in some of what I've written on how American struggles with democracy can be a, a warning or a witness to those who are in favor of independence. That was Jared Stacey on the lessons we can learn in the UK from Trumpism in the States. And we'll hear more from him later in the show. Hello and welcome back to The Stushy, the Scottish politics podcast from DC Thompson that helps you be better briefed. I'm Andy Phillip and on this episode I'll be joined by Justin Bowie, Rachel Amory and Derek Healy to talk about the big stories of the week. Not only that, but it's the first episode back for 2023. Hopefully you've all had a fine break and coped through the festive season without us. It already feels like a distant memory. Uh, it's been non-stop so far. We've we record just now, uh, only hours after the Prime Minister dropped into Scotland for some announcements. More on that shortly. We've got these new free ports to discuss. They're low-tax, business-friendly sites, which the government thinks will create thousands of jobs. But Greens think they are a gimmick for wealthy people. And we'll look at health too. The NHS is in big trouble this winter, leading to political headaches for the SNP, including Hamza Yousaf, the Health Secretary, whose job is constantly being questioned and put on the line by opposition parties. But first, we're going to cast our net a little wider by looking further afield at our old friend Donald Trump. You'll remember him. He's the Aberdeenshire businessman who owns a golf course or two and went on to become President of the United States, caused all sorts of horror, then refused to go quietly. Two years since uh, the, the insurrection attempt at the Capitol, as it was termed, the same thing's happening in Brazil, where sore losers think their election was stolen. Where have we heard all this before? One man who knows a thing or two about this is Jared Stacey. He was a pastor in the US, Texas to be specific, when Trumpism reared its head there. He quickly found his community, evangelical Christians, were enthralled by his messaging. He didn't like it at all and saw how conspiracy theories, right-wing messaging, populism were all coming together to propel Trump into office with, as he says, some quite damaging consequences and some big questions to, to rake over all over the world. Jared ended up leaving the States. He came to Aberdeen, where he's studying that very subject area as a PhD student at Aberdeen University. It's all fascinating stuff. I was keen to catch up with him to see what lessons we might learn here about conspiracy, populism, social media, the rise of uh, strongman figures like Donald Trump, particularly when things can be so febrile here with Brexit, independence, constitutional arguments all the time. They're such hot topics. And we appear to be going through prime ministers as well faster than we can create new ones. I started by asking him what lessons that we might learn here. I think the way that resentment festers and politics based off fear uh, is a powerful, very potent form of politics that can marshal all kinds of uh, authoritarian power grabs. And, you know, the, the question, uh, I've done this as just an observer to Scottish politics, the question of independence is something that I look at um, and have tried to make connections in some of what I've written on how American struggles with democracy can be a, a warning or a witness to those who are in favor of independence, right? The, the questions that involve, that come with setting your own course in terms of a democracy, um, but even, even for those who are in favor of staying in the union, the nature in which, uh, and I'm thinking particularly of uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson uh, and some of his politics uh, were very similar in terms of the playbook run 
uh, to Trump, and that will probably come as that's not a, a novel insight in the slightest. Um, but uh, as an American moving here during Boris's uh, premiership, I, that was something that for me was very similar playbooks being run. And so there's always, maybe I could say this, is that uh, like we're seeing with Trump uh, now moving more towards DeSantis and DeSantis kind of becoming this ideological heir to the sort of culture war uh, politics and issues, politics based on fear and resentment. I think that that is something like we see in Brazil that is always uh, a threat or always a possibility, even in democracies that we think are stable. And there's something to be said for uh, a system of government that can go through three prime ministers and a monarch as quickly as the UK has. Um, and that sense of stability that you may or may not feel uh, is probably also just as fragile and so I think probably the greatest thing is this sense of, well, every transition of power is going to be secure. Of course it is. Uh, the United States and Brazil would lead us to believe that any kind of paranoia or resentment that politicians can stoke in their favor can do a lot more damage in the short term than we actually think. Mm-hmm. You, you're looking a lot at the, the that intersection, I think, as, as you termed it, um, between the community that you were part of in the States mm-hmm. and that kind of conspiracy theory element that right. coming together of those two elements became quite dangerous, possibly politically. Mm-hmm. Are you seeing anything like that happening here to a particular degree? I'm thinking kind of of, a, of a, uh, an old novel called It Can't Happen Here mm-hmm. by Sinclair Lewis. I don't know if you've read it, but it's a, a tremendous... I love Sinclair Lewis. A hundred-year-old or so warning from the past about how... Right. Liberal people can can go along and just imagine that nah that kind of thing it won't happen here until it does. Right. Do you see that kind of conspiracy theory edge, particularly in the way that the the social media mm-hmm. is so disparate right now? Is it taking hold in a in a more alarming way than than you would that you would hope? Um, I think when we look at the global scene, yes, um, the way that digital infrastructure and uh, the digital architecture of the world that we inhabit, uh, these ideas and these populisms and paranoias. Um, uh, can be accessed by anyone at any time. And so the, the, the global fear of a great reset, that's a, a prominent conspiracy theory, um, particularly centering in the continent and you know, by consequence here in the UK on the, uh, the war in Ukraine. I think uh, those kind of connections that I saw in the States with conspiracy theory and paranoia, they're almost built in uh, to the politics of democracy. Um, because that idea of a deep state um, or the, the eroding of democracy, there's always this perpetual paranoia or fear that's almost required uh, in a democracy of particular right or far far left. Uh, those That kind of horseshoe effect. So for some of your listeners who are asking, well, that, that's a right-wing problem, right? Well, when you see the far left and the far right kind of coming together, maybe not ideologically, but the form and practice of their politics, I think that's when we start to be concerned because you start to see similarities uh, in terms of resentment, in terms of polarization, even if they're ideologically distinct, uh, the the practice and form of politics becomes very dangerous. So here in the UK, uh, the conspiratorial notion about, uh, you know, the pandemic that persists and evolves, the, 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 conspiracy theories related to Ukraine and the war in Ukraine. Those are things that I heard here um, about how it's it's a fraud and things like that. Uh, so there's there's 
a proliferation of conspiracy theories that anyone can access UK, US, Australia, uh, you know, all across uh, the globe. So I mentioned those three countries in particular, because I've, I've spoken with people in Australia who we've collaborated and said, well, we're noticing this, we're noticing that. And so to your question, it doesn't really matter where you exist in a particular place because of the way that our digital architecture creates access to these kind of paranoid ideas um, that can proliferate uh, in any place in any time through these politics of fear and resentment. And it becomes um, very difficult to detect and more difficult to uh, dangerous even when politicians start to pick that up as a tool to be used. I'm casting my mind back to 2014 after the independence referendum in Scotland. There was real fringy movements at that point talking about all oh, you know frauds and stolen elections but it was shut down very mm-hmm. quickly it never became a, a mainstream feeling brexit's come and gone as a vote but the implications are very very much with us right now and um there's there's a real kind of element of worry among the pro-brexit side that everyone's always trying to overturn or mm. steal back that kind of result um, do you think that that attitude in Scotland in particular is is a, a worry um, on either side of the constitutional debate, given that the referendum for independence is very much a live issue? Right. We're talking about it in a debate just yesterday before we were talking today in, in the Scottish Parliament, for example. I do think uh, one of the features of conspiracy theory um, put forward by someone by Timothy O'Malley. Uh, just for your readers who want to read more and, and dive into this further, uh, is this notion of an, what he calls an agency panic. When people fear in modern society that their freedoms are being taken away, what he, he calls that phenomena an agency panic, uh, where people do feel... So when, when you talk about the constitutional crisis and this question of self-determination, which is an important question, and it's a debate that by itself ought to be had if we say we care about democracy... Um, but the shape of that debate and how it expresses or manifests, not necessarily in um, a politics of uh, uh, more of a politics of spectacle and, and resentment and polarization, uh, as opposed to a politics that uh, really has at its center uh, a a respect for human beings and who we are, and and so that's where a a brunt force authoritarian politics almost lurks behind uh, any form, any ideological persuasion of a politics that is basically at a, a self-defense mechanism. And so to your point, like this idea that, uh, that the question of independence would be taken off the table um, by forces or by politics that don't represent uh, the will or the wishes of Scottish parliament or by consequence, the Scottish people, you know, that is a serious question of politics. To the extent that that plays out, though, Andy, in terms of uh, base resentment, contempt, and paranoia, people uh, in some ways are going to invent, and that's part of the issue of conspiracy theories, is that people invent explanations to explain the unexplainable. And so when these issues or questions of constitutional crisis, these conversations are uh, not immediately witnessed by the public, you, you will have people who invent uh, explanations um, tied to geopolitics around the world of, well, this is why. Um, so truth-telling is a very dangerous act for a politician. Um, and that's what's at stake, though, is politicians, leaders who see their constituents as 
real people with real needs who call them, elect them into a truth-telling capacity and a truth-telling uh, situation. Uh, and when, when that level of trust breaks down, disinformation runs rampant. There's a bit of distance there between you moving over to Aberdeen. I mean, how are the your former colleagues, compatriots in the States, how do they interact with you now, knowing how you've shifted away from perhaps what they thought? That's a good question. I don't know if I have all the time to answer it here. Um, what I will say is that uh, what I've really enjoyed from being around the Scottish people in general and the people that uh, I live around is that there is a opinion or perspective on the country that I'm a citizen of. There's a perspective of America that Americans don't always see. And that has been really helpful in me parsing or negotiating uh, the questions that I get. Um, you know, the question is, well, you know, did you go off and become a liberal? And now I kind of sit in this position. What do you, what do you mean by that? Because uh, that's that's a different that's a different conversation. Um, there's also, in a more immediate sense, Andy. Uh, two years on, I'm still very much uh, receiving questions or comments about. Uh, well, I, I don't think you, you're looking at January 6th correctly. It was, you know, a, a largely peaceable day and things like that. And so there are questions like that that almost sort of signal to me uh, the cost of staying was greater than the cost of leaving uh, in terms of how backlash to these kind of events re-entrench certain ideological uh, and theological for Christians, uh, how those moves kind of uh, create a backlash. And so it has been difficult uh, and, and disorienting in some ways, but in a larger sense, uh, coming out of that and being able to parse and negotiate and ask those questions outside um, of those spaces has been not only uh, helpful, but uh, in, in a personal sense, healing uh, and necessary. Um, I'm not saying that everyone needs to leave America in order to get a perspective on it, but this has just been my experience uh, and it's been a helpful one. That was Jared Stacey, and you can read more about our chat on our politics pages at The Courier and Press and Journal online. Now let's turn to the big events happening where we live. Rishi Sunak has been in the Highlands um, just hours before we speak, where he was announcing two long-awaited free ports uh, for Scotland. One is going to be the Cromarty Firth, and the other one will be at Fourth Ports, which takes in uh, both sides of the, the Firth, um, on the Edinburgh side, and across Fife, including Rosyth. We revealed exclusively earlier this week that these would be the sites that get announced, and you can read a lot more about the background on our website. Um, but now that it's been confirmed, the uh, Prime Minister has done his thing, what on earth is a Freeport, and should we care? Justin, you've been beavering away with me as well, just trying to get your head around what what these free ports are and what they might mean. I mean, what does anyone actually know? Has anyone ever explained very usefully to you what a free port is? Well, I suppose the bite-sized version would be that a free port is sort of a special economic zone. And the idea is that it incentivizes businesses to invest and they then get tax breaks. So they operate within a certain area. And if they operate there, they get to benefit from lower taxes as a result. So in, in practice, then, we're, we're looking at jobs and, and things like that in two specific parts of the country. I mean, what, what, what are, they, what are the, the bidders saying about the, the, the impact? Yes, I mean, 
the two bids combined, it's hoped, could possibly create up to 75,000 jobs. So there will be a focus on the environmental element of this. One of the key components of the deal in Scotland was that we would see green freeports. So as an example, up in the Highlands with the Cromarty Firth um, project, it's hoped that the freeports will help whiskey firms decarbonise and move towards kind of net zero production quicker. And in addition to that, in Recife, which obviously is the main area, and Fife, which will benefit from the fourth ports project, it's hoped that we'll see things like improvement in shipping logistics. The sort of Recife area that's used for the port is going to see an expansion as well. And the two projects obviously cover large areas as well. So you'll likely see, I suppose, job creation that extends beyond those areas alone. You know, all of Fife could benefit from this, perhaps, if people are willing to travel to the Scythe to work. And in the Highlands, it's hoped, I suppose, that it's going to kind of help regenerate that area economically as well. I was speaking to uh, one of the Highland MPs, Jamie Stone, about this very subject when um, when we were revealing how the Cromarty Firth bid in particular was being lined up for, for a win. Because um, there was obviously a lot more competing um, and we'll have to get back to the the disappointment for the Aberdeen bid as well because that was um, a lot of hopes locally were being pinned on that one but Jamie Stone in the Highlands he, he mentioned that he used to work at the Nig Yard many moons ago and his you know he's, he's delighted and he thinks that this is going to herald a real step change I think it was his phrase um, you know halting any kind of population decline keeping the schools filled bringing people to the area you know injecting a lot more uh, money into the communities as well so uh, and it and it perhaps shifts the balance as well to to a manufacturing base again. Um, he, he's high hopes for um, floating platforms and things getting fabricated up there uh, in that part of the world. But I mean, seventy five thousand jobs is a big it's a big number. They like a nice round number like that. I mean, what evidence is there that these jobs are going to come to fruition? Well, it's a good question, and I suppose we don't know. Um, it, it certainly seems like a lot of businesses are keen to invest as a result of this. So I'd be very surprised if there's not a substantial number of jobs. But obviously, that could be complicated by the recent economic turmoil we've seen across the UK. You know, the UK has a myriad of economic problems. That could perhaps put some businesses off. Uh, and I suppose there would be the argument as well, I'm sure we'll get into this, but, you know, the counter-arguments to Freeports is that if businesses aren't willing to invest at the current tax rates you have, are they going to necessarily shift all this production, all this investment into both Cromarty Firth and into Fife and the surrounding areas around Fife, which benefit from that deal, solely because you've launched these free ports? It's hard to know at the moment. And I suppose if these jobs are over a long time, some jobs may come immediately, some may be longer term, some may be shorter term. It's hard to know right now. Aberdeen failed and there's been quite a lot of focus from the Conservatives in that part of the world and the Greens as well are, are looking at um, the implications for, for for the policy. If we take Aberdeen first, what are we hearing about the, the kind of fallout, the disappointment that they, their bid didn't didn't score high enough to, to get through? Well, yeah, Aberdeen and Peterhead had a joint bid. They were obviously hoping that theirs would be accepted. I suppose one of the key arguments they were putting forward is that the Northeast has already been a sort of economic powerhouse for Scotland over the years, but we're winding down oil and gas production, moving towards renewables. And their idea was if you're going to have green freeports, environmentally friendly freeports, what better place to invest than the area that's trying to shift to become Nicola Sturgeon's described in the past as the possible renewables capital of Europe, I suppose. 
But I suppose every area that's put a bid in is going to make similar arguments as to why their bid is the best. The Highlands will say, we need investment here, we need regeneration to stop population decline. The fourth will say, well, we've got good links with Europe, we've got good reasons to kind of win this as well. But there's definitely a lot of disappointment in Aberdeen yeah. and there was certainly a hope. Um, Sir Ian Wood, a business, businessman who's well known and has obviously been at the forefront of this, argued that there's going to be need to be some targeted investment if Aberdeen, well, now we know Aberdeen isn't going to get it, so he wants to see some proper investment there. And another thing as well, obviously, is that Liz Truss, when she was briefly Prime Minister, had promised investment zones sort of as a alternative, you know, a sort of Europa League alternative to the, you know, the, the bids that didn't win. Those have been put in the back burner now. There was a lot of indications that Sunak isn't interested in them. So I suppose for Aberdeen, there's a bit of a kind of feeling here of being left completely empty-handed. Yeah, nice analogy there, Justin, bringing the Europa League into that one. Rachel, you've been listening to this as well, and you've been looking at the kind of the kind of the other side of the coin a wee bit here, because the Greens, who are, remember, in a form of government with the SNP at Holyrood, they're by default sort of signed up to this as as ministers, but the party itself is not at all. What what are the what are the Greens saying about the Freeport plan? Yeah, we've heard a lot about how good these free ports are going to be and the benefits it's going to bring, but the Greens are very much saying, well, they've got reservations, um, particularly with the environment and also with um, things such as workers' rights, for example, as well. Um, Ross Greer, he's an MSP um, in, in Holyrood, and he says it's a failed and dated Tory gimmick and it will only benefit the super rich and major corporations because he says it will only offer big tax breaks to businesses and workers will see their terms and conditions significantly reduced. Um, he also said that internationally, freeports are associated with crime and money laundering and smuggling and low wages and low environmental standards. And obviously all those things are not something we want to bring to Scotland, obviously. Um, so yeah, he's got a lot of reservations there. Um, obviously, with the Green Party as well, you expect them to talk about the environment. They say it's going to cause significant damage to the environment because it will affect sort of seabirds and things like that as well. Um, one of our colleagues actually in the Courier went down to Rosyth a couple of months ago to speak to some people about what they thought. And some of them were saying, yes, we, we understand there's going to be lots of new jobs brought forward, but they are worried about... The, the wildlife that's in the fourth um, and some saying they look forward to seeing certain birds and certain animals every single day on their walks and they're worried that that will all be wiped out completely if this, well, as, as we now know, will go ahead in the fourth and of course in Cromarty as well. You know, I actually made me think of something I was doing yesterday. Um, I was speaking to some people who live in Torrey yesterday. Um, a park there said Fittix is getting, it's earmarked for development to help this transition away from oil and gas. They don't want that to happen because of the community benefits that the park brings. And I said to them, well, surely this is good for the environment, moving away from oil and gas. And they said, we can't have a just transition with a starting off with injustice. And it kind of feels a bit like that too, with their saying, well, actually, yes, it's all good for jobs and um, regeneration in the area. But what about wildlife and the environment? That needs to be taken into account yeah. as well. Well, I'm glad, you, I'm glad you mentioned that, actually, because it's a good opportunity for me to say um, that we will be... We don't have enough time to sort of go into every spin-off from the Freeports today, but we will be doing um, a special package on the, the future of energy, um, in particular, what next for Aberdeen, given that it, it missed out on Freeports, but there's the, the UK and Scottish governments both claim that they are you know, fully committed to making things 
uh, better there and move away from oil and gas. So I know that we've got some interviews coming and a special look at what the future is there. In particular, the sort of the growing split a bit between the old guard and young blood. You know, we've got um, a lot of people still pinning their hopes to oil and gas, but a lot of people in the northeast who are, are younger, they they think that this this kind of monolithic view of the the northeast is outdated and and they want to see some big changes so and of course your interview with the people at Torrey in Aberdeen as well so we'll be back with that next week we're moving away a little bit from that theme now um Derek Healy has been looking at a lot of the the health service woes um since we came back from the Christmas break um I mean hardly a day goes by without something alarming happening in the health service we can you bring us up to speed i mean the, the nhs is, is is struggling yeah i think i think that's very very <laughs> fair to say um yeah, i mean it's been an absolute barrage of stats coming out they get worse and worse um hamza yusuf the health secretary took an absolute battering uh during first minister's questions this week from pretty much every party in the chamber um i would say the snp and greens obviously um yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a picture that looks absolutely horrendous. And it's, it's worth saying that there are similar pro- problems being seen across the UK and to some extent across the world. So there is a context there that there are major problems coming off the back of COVID, coming off the back of flu, all sorts of things going on. Um, but the argument that's being made by opposition parties at, at, at Parliament is that this is not just a problem that's come about this year. This is a problem that is years and years and years in the making. We've seen, even before COVID, every winter we we write stories um, because every winter it seems as if the NHS is approaching crisis point. We've seen yeah. that again and again and again. So this isn't a new thing, but I think the scale of this is new. I mean, we saw um, a statement being made from the First Minister it looked a little bit like you know, back to old COVID days. It felt a little bit like that. Um, yeah. I think trying to highlight the scale of this problem. But then on the back of that, so when we have this kind of attempt to try and sort this out, we've also seen a, a number of reports come out this week. So we saw a report come out into mental health, which is three years on from um, what was called the Strang Report, which looked into mental health in Tayside coming out saying not enough has been done, some progress has been made, but there's lots of problems where there are still, lots of areas, sorry, where there are still issues. And then we saw um, just yesterday uh, the government's response to the Drug Desk Task Force, which was a report, the final report came out in July, called for an overhaul of services, much more action, criticised the government for unrealistic targets. And again, what we saw, the response to that was that Really not enough is being done. There isn't a sort of step change happening here. So you have all of these areas where there are all these problems and things just don't seem to be getting sorted out. So yeah, be, I think crisis would be a, a fair word to use. Where are we seeing the pinch points then? I mean, uh, NHS Grampian has got some fairly bad statistics. I mean, the big cities like Glasgow and, and Edinburgh, they, they are always under pressure and they always, given the population share, they seem to top leagues of this, that and the other. But where, where else is it happening? I mean, rural Scotland has known for a long time that uh, healthcare can be tricky in in, in um, more disparate patches. 
Well, I think one of the problems we're seeing here is this is right across the board. So this week, you're quite right, Glasgow, um, they announced that they're going to cancel all or suspend all non-emergency elective procedures. But at the same time, in Kirkcaldy, you, we heard um, that you have people being seen in ambulances outside of A&E. And um, one of the calls from a, a, an ambulance worker was for Nicola Sturgeon to come to A&E and see for herself the scale of these problems. Um, so we're seeing it right across Scotland. And I think that's one of the issues. Is it's, it seems to be every department. You know, we see about A&E waiting times. We see about ambulance waiting times. We have um, trackers on our website, which people can go and have a look at, which um, look at things like waiting times for people who are trying to access um, drug and alcohol services. They are horrendous as well. So right across the board, there seems to be such a pressure on every single area. And I think that was the point that was being made at First Minister's Questions this week, is that it's, you know, this isn't just about, okay, so people are coming back after COVID and, and trying to access services again. Um it seems to be right across the board. And I think that's the difficulty. Mm. How do you begin to approach that? Um, and that's where we're seeing those those conversations take place. Yeah, we, we heard from people on the front line and doctors, retired doctors, previous people who are high, high ranking people who've seen it all and been there before. And we heard that phrase, the canary in the coal mine, Justin. Yes, well, last week I spoke to Dr. Miles Mack. He is a Dingwall doctor. Um, he's a GP and he's the former head of chair, sorry, of the Royal College for General Practitioners in Scotland. And he was saying that a lot of the issues we're now seeing across Scotland as a whole have been known in rural Scotland for a long time. For example, the struggle to recruit GPs, general practices being sort of taken over by the health board because there's simply nobody to work there. Often the Highland boards and some of the kind of rural island places don't necessarily have the same issues with any waiting times. They're a little bit better, but they do have a lot of these problems as well. And it's as if these problems are kind of gradually seeping out to the whole country. Miles Mack also interestingly said that a lot of the recruitment issues could be made even worse in rural areas by the cost of living crisis. We're seeing that as well. Nurses are wanting better pay terms because inflation is high. Therefore, a 2%, 3% increase doesn't necessarily cut the mustard for them. And another Highland figure, Inverness doctor, Dr Ian Kennedy, who is the head of the Doctors' Union BMA, in Scotland, he has been giving similar warnings. He welcomed some of the measures and some of the announcements made earlier this week, but his argument is we need a proper long-term discussion that goes beyond mere platitudes and mere funding. He says that doctors are suffering from stress and burnout, and essentially, you know, the current situation isn't working. He used a very, very interesting phrase, saying that the NHS can't just struggle to survive from crisis to crisis. And it's an interesting point because it almost seems as if we're thinking, right, if we can get to March, if we can get to April, we get through the worst of the winter. But what happens next year when the same happens again? What happens yeah. in a few years when it just gets worse and worse and deteriorates more and more? And we seem to be stuck in this position where we just kind of accept you know, the idea of the NHS being in crisis over winter is the norm. It's not seen as exceptional. Yeah. It's just seen as, well, it's December, it's January, and this is how it goes. Exactly. And, uh, you know, on this point, that I mean, we could talk for hours about it, but I would, I would merely point our listeners to other stuff we've been writing about um Derek and another opportunity to run the flag up the pole on your NHS Tayside breast cancer documentary which you can you can click on and, and watch in full it's a, an amazing lifting the lid on on big problems in the background of, of a health board in how it approaches uh, cancer treatment Rachel you've been looking at um other things I mean this is the thing that the NHS is constantly having to 
react to the demands of communities. You were looking at NHS Fife uh, this week, um, particularly women's health, maternity wards. Can you explain a little bit about the pressures that are coming to bear on, on that part of the health service too? Yeah, again, this is a decision that was made to try and just make other services better, make other services more accessible. And it means that women's health is, some women in Fife feel that they've been sort of forgotten about a little bit here, um, particularly when it comes to gynaecology. Um, but th- like you said, there are some stories on our website already, but I'm looking to do some more follow-up stories on that too in the coming days. So um, if you keep an eye on the website, there'll be more to come on gynaecology and NHS Fife and more about women's health in the area too. Yeah, there's plenty more of that um, all over our websites. But I think that's pretty much it for this week. Thanks to Derek Healy, Justin Bowie, Rachel Amory and producer Morvan McIntyre. And of course, to you for listening. We'll be back next week with more. But until then, and even after then, pick up or log on to The Courier, The Press and Journal and all of our news brands so that you can be better briefed. The Stushi is the politics podcast from DC Thompson, designed to help you understand the implications of what happens in Holyrood, Westminster and our communities so that you can be better briefed. Don't miss an episode by following The Stushi today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. And if you know folks like you who want to understand politics in Scotland a little better, suggest they tune in or follow Stushi Scott on Twitter and Facebook. And stay even more up to date on local and Scottish news by subscribing to The Courier or Press and Journal, where you can get one month of unlimited access for just £1. Check the episode notes for details and terms.